Greetings, everyone. Excited about today's show. I'd like to welcome Paul Archer, founder and CEO at Duel. Paul, welcome to the show. Ben, thanks for having me. Greetings from uh, a very gray and dark London. Yes, that's true. We had dark and gray. I'm in Denver right now where it's actually sunny. We've had a lot of rain, which is unusual. So uh, well, welcome, Paul. Let's kick this off. Tell us a little bit about your SaaS background. So I got my first job in SaaS. Um, I was the first employee for a company called Grad Intel, which is a graduate recruitment headhunting technology company that now serves uh, about two thirds, I think, of the UK uh, student market. Um, so I was their first employee when I was 19 or 20. I took time out of university to go and work there, learn how to sell from the from the, the CEO, who's just an amazing founder, an amazing salesman, and sort of just like really got into that that world there. Uh, and that was my first taste of it. And I then kind of took a roundabout way. I, I did uh, a, a bunch of different things. I used to do large scale expeditions um, and then found myself on the more consumer side, building software for games and, and working on the gamification. And what we found is that there's an opportunity for, for to build a B2B SaaS business using the gamification experience that we've got, combining it with um, the, the brand world. And that's how, how Jewel came about. I love it. So yeah, diverse background, expeditions, first employee when you're early on. And uh, yeah, really, really interesting. And what your background, say education wise, because a lot of founders, sometimes they're technical, they're business sales, and how what's your your background uh, that you came up from? Uh, I'm I'm semi-technical. I think I know enough to be dangerous, which means is I probably should never be getting involved. I, I wrote my first website when I was, um, built my first game when I was about nine and my first website when I was about 12 or 13. Um, however, my academic background was was in business and uh, consumer psychology and the psychology um, of people and understanding how they work. And, and so that's that's that strange combination is is actually set me in really good stead today because a lot of what we do at Jewel is is tied into how you can get the behaviors that you need from people and, and what are the what are the triggers you need, what are the the incentive structures you do, all of that plays to that psychology there. And then obviously it's a technology platform. So the the tech background does does help. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah, I love that background. And you said you wrote your first game at 12 or was it nine uh, it was it was uh it, it was 12. not really a game it was like uh, on a well it was a, on a an old macintosh with mm -hmm. my friend it was called hansen hackers and uh, it had the the premise that uh, these yellow blobs which were to represent the blonde members of the hansen band who at nine <laughs> we thought were the, the absolute nemesis and uh, you, they'd move around and they'd get slashed and they turn to red blobs um so it was not the most sophisticated thing in the world um but <laughs> i think it probably represented the mind of a nine or ten year old yeah that's great i was just i was listening to sirius xm the other day and they were talking about they went to a hansen show just because they happen to be in town and the whole thing. yeah so interesting <laughs> uh so dual yeah tell us a little bit about dual what what does dual do exactly you mentioned a little bit about it but yeah tell us tell us what what the company does so Jewel is a platform used by consumer retail brands uh, to grow through the people that love them. So the idea of brand advocate marketing is, is how can you turn word of mouth into something which is measurable, predictable and scalable, um, which obviously in SaaS, we love a good bit of that. And so it's normally 
very hard to do. Most brands spend their time to sort of acquire customers and they, they spend their money on adverts and, and to, because it's easy. And uh, the word of mouth side of things really comes to how do you grow through people? How do you find those people that are customers? How do you find those people are fans? And then actually move them to become advocates so they can support or recommend your brand and um, do that uh, publicly. Now, over the past couple of years, particularly because of COVID, it's just that we've obviously all moved on to social in, in terms of the way that we exist, the way that information passes between people. But particularly from there, the idea of social commerce has just exploded. And it's an industry which is, you know, they're set to be about $1.2 trillion passing through it in 2025. And this is just anyone who's made a purchase that's been influenced by social media. And, and most people have. Um, but what's remarkable about social is that it's user generated it's it's generated by real people um it's not by one central media company or by brands or by companies it's, it's individuals which means that if a, a brand needs to play in this world they need to be able to manage the relationships with those individuals so that they can advocate for them and actually drive commerce through social and so what jewel is is it's a platform that makes that really really easy and we work with some of the biggest brands in the world um you know we work with mid-market and enterprise brands mm -hmm. to allow them to do that at the scale that they need because if you're really big um the the need that you have to build relationships with thousands, tens of thousands of advocates across languages, different territories, integrating that into your technology stack is incredibly complex, which is where Jewel comes in as, as the solution that they need. Yeah, really interesting because I uh, interviewed a, a founder of an influencer platform and you know he was seeing budgets now right allocated to these different channels now which right didn't exist maybe you know 10 20 years ago so do you see that as well and 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 also would you say are advocates the same thing as influencers or slightly different no it's a good question so i'll i'll, I'll start with the second one first mm -hmm. so an advocate is anyone who is a fan of a brand uh, who who supports or recommends it and has a more of a long-term relationship with them so they're doing it over a period of time and so every one of us is an advocate we all have brands that we love that we're passionate about it could be a sport we're into or it could be a trend it could be makeup it could be fashion you know but we all have these brands that we love and then we tell our friends about them we tell them about the products we're wearing we're using why they're so great and this is the most effective way for any brand to grow and in fact it's the way every brand has grown but previously it's just never been something you could invest in and make sort of scalable so yeah. an advocate could be you and i um it could be someone who is a you know a social creator there um they're in fact what but both of us are we both have our podcast so we create in our own ways there um but also with looking at people on instagram who are creating content on there people on tiktok but they may not have a large audience they they may have a thousand followers or two thousand followers they're advocates you could be looking at industry professionals like makeup artists or instructors or hairdressers they're also uh, advocates and you're also looking at your macro influencers you look you got um george clooney for as a celebrity drinking espresso one of the old school ones right yeah. and then you've obviously got these massive ones you've got kardashians you've got um people with millions of followers on youtube or or, or instagram wow. and they as long as they are doing it over a long period of time they're not just being paid to pretend to like a brand which the vast majority of influencer marketing is by the way um then then they are an advocate and brands will use our technology to maintain a long-term relationship with that person not dissimilar to the way you would with someone within your crm for example mm -hmm. okay okay yeah that makes a lot of sense 
And then, yeah, budget-wise, now, do you see marketing budgets getting more defined now in these categories, right, that didn't maybe didn't exist? Or it's like you said, great, I love it. It's like it was hard to tap. There were adverts out there, right, 50, 60 years ago, right? But how do you leverage that? How do you tap into, which sounds like you figured that out. Do you see marketing budgets getting very detailed in these areas now? Um, everyone's slicing and dicing the same stuff mm-hmm. in, in different ways, I guess. But the but but the trend is definitely there. So mm-hmm. anyone who had advocacy in their job title at a consumer business, I think there were two when we started um, setting off on this mission. There are now hundreds. So it has become something which is like within the marketer's purview however it's still a very nascent category which is incredibly exciting for for companies like us who are able to enable them for that because these guys they don't have uh, a technology stack that they use for driving brand advocacy they're currently using 10 different tools bolted together unconnected and and something like jewel aggregates those and bundles them into one one technology so it's it's actually you know one vendor so it's a fraction of the cost but also it's much more effective because it's integrated so the the budgets themselves, it tends to be that you're pulling from one of the two areas, either acquiring customers or you're retaining customers. Uh, and those budgets haven't changed in terms of how much is allocated. But what would have been spent on newspaper ads and out-of-home billboards then gets spent on digital, which basically means it's 90% of that will be either Facebook or Google. Um, and then it's, it's like, how do you scrabble some of that to try and reallocate that budget and actually spend it on your fans, your advocates, so that they can get free products and they can be given a remarkable experience that causes them to literally remark upon it, you know, create content that's about your brand to their audience that's authentic and true so that you believe it and that's what drives the commerce side of it because someone can say oh, hey i love this thing if they're pretending to like it we can all see through that a mile away just because you know we've grown up on on the internet but if they genuinely have the authenticity that they love a product then it can it draw it not only can you acquire a customer for a fraction of the price but they then convert three times more likely and they themselves are then worth twice as much when you look at the lifetime value. So, so the math works out. It's then just a question of, all right, are we willing to make this long-term bet um, to actually allow this to happen? Okay. And to get, can you give us a, a basic use case? Like say uh, there's a clothing brand and they want to use your platform. What, 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 how does that work? What would we, like a use case look like for, as far as using your platform? Yeah, so we go into a clothing brand and we work with quite a lot of clothing brands um, on, on both sides of the Atlantic. So let's take someone like Cool, um, the the uh, outdoor brand based in, in the US, somewhere in the region of $100 million turnover. Um, and they have a couple of programs with, that they use the dual technology for because we went and help them design or outline what their brand network looks like like where are the different communities of advocates that they could possibly work with um and so they you know we outlined that there's you know there's their customers obviously is is the largest but they also had a community of kind of um industry experts and content creators so photographers mainly mm-hmm. out um creating amazing content and they weren't able to bring those those um they weren't able to bring those guys into it and they also had some influencer activities mm-hmm. so what we did is we designed two very different programs for them one which is their customer loyalty program which uses the dual technology to track everything that a customer buys as well as what they do so you as a customer can track that you spent 300 bucks on a jacket but then when you 
created left a review for it you got some points from that you also posted it to instagram you also referred your friend which means that you leveled up into the vip tier and unlocked early access to the sale for example you know really kind of consumer experience that we understand so they're using that for that but then there's a separate group for these content creators and these photographers who create just the most remarkable content and so they're getting rewarded they've got like content bounties like we need a picture of a dog on a beach throwing a frisbee or whatever it is and the first 20 is going to get you know free pair of pants um whatever it is it's much more sophisticated than that but Mm -hmm. to give you a a phrase Mm -hmm. and then these these guys are going out and doing it and every time they create content where they are using or wearing the, the the cool gear then they are actually uploading it through their portal, which sits on the brand's website, uh, through tasks and activities and missions and challenges. And they're being incentivized with generally free product. You know, you can pay people, but it's nowhere near as effective as giving people freebies because that keeps them hooked mm-hmm. uh, or you're giving them store credit because that's actually cheaper to a brand to do um, as well. So actually in terms of the way that the brand is, is receiving something, it's much more beneficial. Okay, love it. Yeah, perfect. I love that example. And so uh, some of the basics here, when did you, uh, what year did you found your company? So this was spun out of the gaming studio in um, at the very end of 2016, 2017. Um, it took us a while to find what we were doing. Um, we thought we knew it, set off on this mission to, to, to kind of own this category and turned out we were in the completely wrong direction. You know, we, mm-hmm. we went back to the drawing board and did what I'd recommend all SaaS founders did and actually spent some time talking to our customers in the first place. So we, uh, we, we ended, we did a lot of consulting. We used the gamification expertise and we brought in Jack Crocker, who was, um, she was the GM of uh, brand and community at Lululemon, who are by far and away the, the best in, in the space of growing through community. I think they're worth 40 odd billion dollars and they've done that almost entirely through word of mouth and advocacy. And so we reverse engineered a lot of what Lululemon were doing combined it with our area and then consulted with hundreds of brands and some of the biggest brands in in the uk at least um, to test out this model it clearly worked we then built the software to support that which came out of beta in um the back well it came we went into beta at the very end of 2019 and came out of beta at the uh well second week of march 2020 which historically is probably the worst time anyone has ever launched anything (laughs) ever (laughs) Yeah, yeah, start of the pandemic, right? So interesting, and, and I want to dive into this just a little bit, right? Because we see all these great stories out on the internet, like uh, these products that just take off. But I think you alluded to it took a while to get to that product market fit. So you've found it around 2016, but it sounded like maybe it took a couple of years going back to the drawing board, talking to customers to really figure out what product to offer to, to your customers. Yeah, it, it was, and it, it was kind of, it was good and bad in in some ways and we were able to kind of make ends meet by consulting and mm-hmm. we were brought in by the c-suite and, and are well positioned now as as when if anyone talks about how to get brand advocacy then then we'll often get a call in in in, in this country so that that was beneficial but and from that we really deeply understood what we needed and actually the product we built was was infinitely better and, and it actually is you know, head and shoulders above the rest when it comes to serving the, the enterprise side of things because it took a while to get there. But even with that being said, um, we, I could argue, we didn't really find product market fit until, you know, less than a year ago um, because we were testing out different go-to-markets. We were testing out different customer segments. And, you know, we, we thought it would work for smaller brands. And mm-hmm. actually what we do is we solve 
the bigger you are, the bigger the problem we is that we solve. Um, and that's that's a great place to be if you have enterprise reference clients. But you know, we didn't have any enterprise reference clients. So how on earth are we going to get into those? And so we were able to leapfrog from you know million dollar brands to ten million dollar brands to twenty million dollar brands, and. We were lucky enough to get buy-in from um, the guys at RAB, um, who are the largest outdoor brand in the UK, um, who, who are a la- larger brand. And that then allowed us to then get in with Charlotte Tilbury. And as soon as we got into Charlotte Tilbury, who are one of the largest beauty brands in the UK, that allowed us to then sign ASOS and then to sign Unilever and to kind of go on and start working with those, those big ticket deals. So it was a, it was definitely a pro- progression and our ability to sell into those, understand the value proposition, understand the way that we needed to talk to those brands and, and the way that we needed to deploy this really quite complex piece of technology in, in a new space that's never been done. You know, it takes a while. Um, and now we've got that. It has, it, I always thought that we might've had it previously, now I know what product market fit feels like. It's like, aha, when you've got it, you got it. <laughs> yep. And that was my next question before we move on here to the next. But what was there an aha moment or trigger or something that said, and you said a year ago, figured out product market fit. Was there some aha moment where you're like, oh, yes, we, we found it? The, the moment was when we repackaged the offering to uh, get after the social commerce opportunity. Uh, and that one was previously we were very much going in for the retention budgets. So basically, if you wanted to do a loyalty program, we'd be able to do a better loyalty program. And then we just switched that mindset after having a, a, a just a skunkworks project that went incredibly successfully that we didn't expect to go well, um, where we built a program for, a, for a, a jewelry brand to manage you know, they had 30 social creators managed by one person and they asked if they could use our software to automate out some of the mundane tasks they were doing. And we'd sat down with that person, asked them what they did and turned out that, you know, most of the stuff they were doing seemed pretty pointless and we could get rid of 80% of their job. And so, um, and that and that sounds like we got rid of their job, but what, what we didn't do, we didn't, they're still there. They are now within two months, they went from managing 30 people to managing a thousand. And then from that thousand within within a year, there were over 10,000 people in that program. And that is a program which has reached hundreds of millions of people and, and is one of the major drivers of new customer acquisition for that brand. And, and they're, they're a big brand. And so that thing, we just had this incredible case study in a place that we, it's still advocacy, it's still in the same area, but it wasn't what we initially um, thought would be the case. But when we doubled down on that, very, very quickly, we were then just signing up brands like Left, Right and Center because post-COVID customer acquisition costs have skyrocketed if you're an e-commerce brand mm-hmm. and we provide uh, an alternative to that. That's not only cheaper, but also it's just much better. It's more authentic than just buying ads and putting more money into Zuckerberg's pocket. So it does appeal in, in many ways. Yeah, so really, so if I took something out of that, it sounds like it was understanding what this person did at a company where they're managing 30 advocates or something like that, but you were able to just then you could go from 30 to a thousand and beyond. And that was kind of that trigger moment. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Love it. Love it. Because right product market fit means so many different things to so many different companies, products are really interesting to hear that. So, and yeah, amazing what we can get out of, you know, just asking when your company was founded. So uh, <laughs> how about now next, uh, where is your company located? So we're based um, in London and Bristol in the UK, um, but growing 
growing pretty quickly. We put our first boots in the ground in North America earlier this year and and expanding um, generally remote. The most people are remote, but we have mm-hmm. an office that people occasionally turn up into when they want to go to the pub after work, generally. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And then, yeah, team size. What What's the team size employees and contractors right now? Yeah, about 30 or so um, and and growing as, as we speak. We had a bit of a pause in hiring when the, you know, the, the recession sort of kicked in, trying to t- took stock of what we're able to do. We've, we're fortunate being able to continue growing through that. Um, I believe that what we have is in antithesis to a lot of the ways that people are spending money, we are able to save them a, a bunch of costs. So we're hoping that that will continue to be the case as, as budgets tighten. But one of the last budgets that anyone tightens is the customer acquisition piece. So we're, we're, we're fortunate in that space. Yeah, that's great. And then what, what could you share around kind of size of your company, ARR, revenue levels, anything you want to share there? Yeah, well, no one knows the difference between pounds and dollars right now, you know, probably. <laughs> but we pushed through the million ARR this year um, and have been growing within our ICP segment, you know, 10, 12% a month compounding. So we, we, we know that we've got that. That's one of the other reasons about how it just really clicked that we knew we had that fit um, because it just kind of just, just clicked. Okay. All right. So just past million ARR. So congrats on that. That's awesome. Uh, and then growing about 10 to 12% monthly in your ICP. And so you just raised some funds. So what, how much capital have you raised to date? Um, we've raised 3 million to date, mm-hmm. uh, which, which has allowed us to really build out the product and give us the breathing space to take a few you know, uh, alternative routes to finding that product market fit as we, we covered on. Uh, and now we're at that stage of, we're now starting to ramp up that go to market. Uh, and actually things are going pretty well. We'll, we're going to go out to the market again and, and, and raise more capital predominantly so that we can base and, and grow our sales and support team in North America. Okay. Perfect. And so that was a $3 million seed round and then perfect segue into the next question. So what are those, what were those triggers or milestones that you saw with that first $3 million raise where you said, Hey, it's time. And now you're seeing it again. So tell us a little bit about that, the, what you saw that indicated that it's time to raise that, the 3 million seed. Um, we took some cap. We've had a really supportive investor in the form of super seed VC who, who, when we met them just just through these these kind of just cursory chats that we were having it just clicked and and we and they were they right away were like we'd love to do the round and we were like we'd love to work with them the, the main reason being is because they were they are ex operators you know they have built successful saas businesses themselves and i'm a first time saas founder and and that level of expertise is 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 exactly mm-hmm. what we're looking for so the ability to bring them in as a partner was one of the major triggers for it mm-hmm. um and just we're at that sort of stage of things were starting to take hold starting to realize that you know what we're, we're now moving from a company whose job it is to find product market fit uh to one whose job it is to figure out that sales market fit like go to market mm-hmm. and in that involves a couple of bodies and a couple of more bodies and heads and uh capacity to start start figuring that out effectively okay so i love that i love that distinction right finding product market fit looks like you found that and now that go to market fit that repeatable sales and marketing motion and then you're looking at now raising another round and is it now to put dollars towards that go-to-market motion or what's that trigger like hey now we're ready for you know an extension or or you know that next round 
Um, well, apart from the fact that as a British company, we, we got infinitely cheaper to American investors over the past month. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we have, uh, we know that we've got a, we've got to go to market that's working now. Uh, and mm-hmm. that actually came faster than we expected. Mm-hmm. And we, we know that we have ambitions to grow faster than we could do if we were to bootstrap it. Now we, we could very happily bootstrap um, where we mm-hmm. are in through the recession that's not a not a bad choice but mm-hmm. given the opportunity and the growth of the the market the opportunity that that brands are seeing the social commerce opportunity actually and are are the fact that we are really first movers when it when you look at the enterprise and mid-market space it's our it's ours to get after right so um why would we not grow faster if there are brands the, the our biggest problem is brands don't know we exist mm-hmm. uh you know we're, we're 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 over over here on a small island it takes a bit of capital to be able to build up that network in in north america that we don't necessarily have although we've got we've now have reference climate clients from global brands that everyone will recognize and that makes things a lot easier Mm -hmm. but certainly it's not something which which is going to be necessarily cheap and bootstrappable if you want to move at the speed that we want to and we actually can move given the, the 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 size of the addressable market okay that's great so first is product market fit now you're seeing some go to market motion that's working as well and the growth there the growth of the market now kind of accelerate that that process so and, and did i read uh, you have about 400 customers of that right or over 400 oh no we're we are more enterprise so we've got um oh, okay. you know, in the region about 50 or so 50 okay okay 50 customers okay and then you know some really interesting lessons out of that raising the seed now looking for that next round so for the founders in the audience any tips and tricks or lessons that you can share with the audience around your lessons learned from fundraising so i think that the the biggest lesson i've learned from fundraising is to trust your gut and and to treat it just the same way that you would hire anyone and you're going to be getting into bed with someone over a long period of time if they're your lead investor it Mm -hmm. matters less obviously if they're just 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 putting a check in but if they're going to sit on the board and they're going to contribute to the strategy and direction of your company uh then you want to choose them wisely. In fact, more wisely than you can with uh, with an employee because if an employee doesn't work out, you can get rid of them. You can't do that to an investor. So uh, I would say to use that level of dil- diligence to do reference calls on them beforehand, mm-hmm. uh, to, to ask around, to you know go for a drink with them, do whatever it is that you need to, to just um, to, to feel right about it. The second mm-hmm. thing is I think that I've known before within five ten minutes of meeting a person that they're going to write a check um or or, or maybe maybe they didn't know that we were going to write a check but i it was certainly on the cards uh from it because there's just a click and it's the same the feeling is exactly the same as you get when a client just gets what you do Mm -hmm. and you know they're going to sign up um, and yes, there may be a whole bunch of stuff and diligence procurement come, might come in the way mm-hmm. or their boss might block it, whatever. But you know, when you just click with a person because uh, you personally get on with them, but also mm-hmm. they get you, they get the vision, they get where you want to go with it. And it feels good. And it just feels great, right from the moment that call started. Um, and that has been the case for us. That was the case when we've met, um, we've had various investors and, and that was the case where we met them and it just, just clicks. And, and other times previously when I've raised money. So, you know, if it feels hard and you're a bit meh even though they do want to write a check like you know there is other money around uh, and if you can get uh-huh. someone to write a check you'll be able to get someone else to write a check that's for sure 
I love that. So two lessons, trust your gut, uh, do reference calls, ask around. And then second, that you kind of have a feeling, a gut feeling that you know that they're going to write and check in five to 10 minutes, uh, within five to 10 minutes of meeting them. And you just have that feeling and it feels good. So love, love that advice for the founders out there. And so what is next for your company? What's coming up that's exciting? What's, what's next? Well, we've got some really exciting brand launches coming over the horizon, working with um, at giant household names and some big projects, which which definitely is exciting from my perspective. Uh, we as a company starting to grow that out, raising that Series A and being able to to get after that that US market is the is the next piece. And so, making sure that every brand knows that we exist, that this is an option, and that they don't have to spend all their money on on Facebook ads, and actually they can be investing that's in the people that love them and, and so that's something which definitely appeals <laughs> to to uh, most people we speak mm-hmm. to uh, they just don't know that it's an option in most cases so that's something which I'm particularly excited about the other side of it is this category is really only just starting and so there's there's a lot of education that we do in best practice in how this works and how they can uh how they can really wrap dollar signs around it as well uh something you'd be interested in it's just like a lot of the time we're talking to these brand marketers about how they can get their cfo to sign off on the budget because you know no one got fired for buying it ibm in the SaaS world but also no one got fired for buying facebook ads in the uh in, in the brand world actually how can you get them to to be brave to to actually step out and make an investment in the brand because your brand is your reputation and this category giving people the playbook in the, in the same way that the lean startup gave startups a playbook of you can follow this to build a great company we are trying to build the same for brands and 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 that is something which i think will be going for quite a while and and as it starts to take form uh, it, it's starting to feel really nice it's starting to feel like people are taking notice and and i i can't wait to see where that one goes that's fantastic so some big brand launches coming up raise that series a and more so pretty exciting uh, so, Paul, really appreciate the time. So a lot of interesting tips, tricks, lessons learned along the way. And if the listeners want to learn more about your company, where, where should we point them? Absolutely. So dual.tech, that's D-U-E-L dot T-E-C-H. They can check out. That's the website for, for Dual. You can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Paul Archer. Uh, pretty easy to find on there. And then I also have a podcast where I interview some of the, the, the best brand builders in the world about how they built their brands and how they contributed to that. And that's called Building Brand Advocacy. Um, and you can find that on all of the podcasting platforms. All right. Perfect. Love that. So dual.tech, D-U-E-L dot T-E-C-H. You've Checked out your LinkedIn profile and then building brand advocacy podcast. So, Paul, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for sharing your story. Ben, thanks for having me.